serving with our kids. We're so thankful for those volunteers giving of their time and discipling our kids. If you have your Bibles with you and you want to open them with me to John chapter 19, that would be fantastic. John chapter 19. I don't know if you saw what we just sang. We sang some really, really good news. Praise forever to the King of Kings. I don't know if you like what's going on in Washington, D.C., or maybe you hate what's going on in Washington, D.C., but here's the good news. We have a King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is utterly in charge. You know, like that's really good news. I don't know if, you, if what's going on in Ukraine makes you more mad or more sad. But the good news is, there is a King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is utterly in charge of all of it. I don't know if what's going on in your life, the stuff that probably nobody else here knows, or maybe everyone else here knows, I don't know if that makes you more mad, more sad, more afraid, more worried. I don't know what that does to you, but I know it's good news, it's life-giving news that He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This morning, I want to convince you that that's true. I want to show you that it's life-giving. I want to show you how it's life-giving. But I don't know if you're all convinced. Like I think in a room this size, chances are very good that there's some that are undecided on whether or not Jesus is the Son of God, whether or not Jesus really is Lord, whether or not Jesus is the King of Kings. And you'd be looking at that same stuff, going, if he really is good, then why is the world so messed up? Is he not good, or is he not in charge? Because there's a lot of bad stuff happening. So if he's good, why does he let bad stuff happen? Or maybe he's not in charge, you know, because if he's in charge, maybe he's bad, and that's why, that's why bad stuff is happening. But how can he be good and in charge with all this bad stuff happening? So I'm just not sure I buy it. It's a hard it's a hard place. That's a tough question. I want to wrestle with it with you as we look at the answer in John chapter 19. John chapter 19. A little bit of backstory before we get there. I want to show you a couple maps and then a picture. The first one is this. The maroon line that goes kind of all the way around the circle, uh, all the way around the colored stuff, is the Roman Empire at its height. It was not exactly at its height in Jesus' day, but it was close. Um, Rome is there point at, at where the maroon arrow is pointing. And Jerusalem is where the yellow arrow is pointing. Pilate is an agent of Rome. He is Rome's man in Jerusalem. He's the guy representing Roman power in Jerusalem, trying to keep a lid on the powder keg that was the Middle East in general and Jerusalem in particular. We'll, we'll see him. Um, just to, just a reminder, though, that we've already met him. We met him last week, but if you weren't here 
don't remember, this is a picture of uh, Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And so you can see way on the far right, can you see the green little square there? Or did I not get the contrast high enough? I see a couple of you shaking your heads. There's a, there's a green square way over there. That is where the Garden of Gethsemane is in relationship to the city. It's, it's very close. It's on this hill going up to the Mount of Olives. Then you have the Kidron Valley. It goes, Mount of Olives is on top. On the side of that is the Mount of Olives. It goes down into the Kidron Valley and then goes up to the Temple Mount. The temple is what you can see on the right, just to the left of the Garden of Gethsemane. They go there at night. They take Jesus. They bring him, have kind of a mock trial at the high priest's uh, house. Then they take him to Pilate, and they take him to Pilate's headquarters. We think this is Herod's old temple. So in purple there, and I'm going to zoom in a little bit, in purple you can see Herod's old palace. We think this was Pilate's headquarters because it was the nicest place to stay, so it would make sense for him to stay there. And then the praetorium, or the this is where we think, because you'll see Pilate go in and out, back and forth, in and out, back and forth. We think this is where uh, the praetorium, where they would go and meet with the Jews, because they wouldn't go into his house because uh, they wanted to stay ritually clean and not get Gentile germs on them. They didn't, they didn't know about germs, I guess, but Gentile uncleanness, Gentile filth. They wanted to stay a long ways away from that. So they would go in the courtyard, but not in his house. So you're going to see him bounce back and forth. So what has already happened, what happened last week, is this guy got released. Anyone remember his name? Barabbas. Barabbas gets released uh, because... They bring Jesus to Pilate, and they say, he's really guilty, really guilty. Pilate says, well, what did he do? They say, well, we wouldn't have brought him if he wasn't guilty. He is so guilty. And Pilate says, I find no guilt in him, so I'll tell you what. I'll help you save face. You have a tradition at Passover. We always let somebody go. How about we let Jesus go, and we can both kind of walk away, with this, walk away from this with our dignity? And they say, absolutely not. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas was guilty of insurrection. That's what they were trying to convict Jesus of. And so Barabbas goes free, and Jesus takes his place, and Jesus is beaten. And that's where we pick it up here in chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. And put it on his head. And arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Question. Where does the cruelty come from? Why? Why? Why go find thorns and go to the trouble of making a crown? And why go to the trouble of finding a purple robe and putting it on Jesus? Why go to the trouble of the mockery when your job is just to hit him, flog him? Well, you've got to remember, you remember that map I showed you of the Roman Empire? A lot of those soldiers that are here in Jerusalem, they're not from Jerusalem. They didn't want to go to the Middle East, and they didn't want to go to Jerusalem, but they're there because Rome sent them there. 
And they're in charge of keeping the peace, and these people are bent on insurrection. And your job is to put it down peacefully, as peacefully as you can. And now, I mean, and they had insurrections, and Roman soldiers did die. And so, and that had happened relatively recently because Barabbas was there. He was guilty of insurrection. And now you've got a guy accused of insurrection. And so all of your anger at all those other insurrectionists, it's all coming due on Jesus. Even though Jesus was innocent. Taking their wrath onto himself in his people's place. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is the second time Pilate has said this. He is innocent. Now I had him beaten, so we can both go away happy. Is that enough? Like, look, he's harmless. He's beaten to a bloody pulp. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. He knows they can't, but he's making a point. I have power, you don't. And he wants to say to them again, I find no guilt in this man, for I find no guilt in him. He's innocent. I don't want to crucify somebody that's innocent. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. They're probably referring to Leviticus, where it says if you claim to be God, if you blaspheme the name, you're worthy of death. You know, that's worthy of death. But, but they're speaking more than, they ought, more than they know because Jesus will take the punishment of the law onto himself and die in our place. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, why? Why is Pilate even more afraid? Well, it could be because this is a more serious problem than he had originally thought because he claims to be the Son of God. Maybe it's, maybe it's a bigger deal than he had thought. That, that's one possible reason. Another possible reason is maybe he's very suspicious, like a lot of Greco-Roman people were. And there were rumors about gods and men intermingling, and maybe this was one of them. Or it could be that his encounter with Jesus... He's kind of wondering if Jesus is who he says he is. And you can see a level of panic in Pilate as you read this. You can see a level of real angst in Pilate as we read. And you wonder if he really has suspicions. Maybe this dude is for real. So he's even more afraid and he enters his headquarters again and says to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. Fulfillment of Isaiah 53, I think verse 7. Like a lamb before his um, the slaughter is silent. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? He's like, look, Jesus, don't you know that I have all the power here? Those folks out there, they don't have any power. I have all the power, Jesus. 
Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. And you can see Pilate get more and more desperate, more and more afraid. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Watch for Caesar. You'll see Caesar's name a couple times here. And everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Got to pick, Pilate. Are you for Jesus or are you for Caesar? So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. Picture that. They're crying for Jesus. Pilate says, I'm not going to do it. He's innocent. They say, well, if you don't, if you don't kill him, you're no friend of Caesar's. He's, tra- he's a pretend king. So Pilate comes out and walks up the steps, sits down on the elevated judgment seat, and now he's going to judge Jesus. At the place called the Stone Pavement, and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, the story stops. And there's a note. Because it's going to pick it right back up. You know, you go right back to the narrative in verse 15. But John wants you to know, it is Passover. He really, really, really wants you to know, this is Passover. Why do you think he wants you to know that? Yeah. No, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Well, in order to understand this, we really got to go back to Exodus chapter 12. And we won't spend a lot of time in Exodus chapter 12, but I do want to read a verse to you. But here, remember the context in, back in Exodus. The people were slaves in Egypt, and they're being oppressed in Egypt. And God sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, Probably not. We enjoy having the slave laborer. We're probably not going to let them go. And so Moses says, okay, well, have it your way then. And God sends one plague after another. And there's this time for the final plague. And for the people to not share in the judgment of the Egyptians, what they have to do is they have to get this little Passover lamb and they have to bring it in and make it part of their family. And then the night Before Passover, or the night of Passover, they're going to sacrifice it, and they're going to eat it, because they're going to be ready to go the next morning. And if they don't do this, their firstborn will die. And a a way to know who's in and who's out, who participated in Passover and who didn't, was to take that blood from the Passover lamb and put it on the door. And so God says, when I go through Egypt, or when the death angel goes through Egypt, he's going to look for the blood. And he says this, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will, what are those next two words? Pass over you. You won't die because I'll see the blood. 
John wants you to know this is a perfect analogy of what Jesus was doing for us. And so he brings this up again and again. I mean, back in chapter 18 of John, John chapter 18, verse 28, you know, the, the, he reminds us that the religious elite would not go in because it was Passover. He's going to remind us again at the end of chapter 18, in verse 39, that they released one man at the time of the Passover, and that man was Barabbas. And here he reminds us again that it was the day of preparation for Passover. And do you know what happened at the sixth hour on the day of preparation for Passover? Do you know what happened at the temple? That's when they started sacrificing the Passover lambs. John wants us to make this connection. That's why he stops the story and reminds us what time it is. And what day it is. Because he wants us to make the connection between the Passover lamb and Jesus. So we pick it up in verse 14. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. There's that guy again, Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. This is the point. This is the point that Jesus is king. Now see, what we want to take from this is that Jesus is king. And what I want you to see is that this is life-giving. So if you have your Bibles open, you want to turn with me to the, the end almost the end of the book, the, right before the last chapter of the book, in John chapter 20, where John states his purpose. And he says, the purpose of the book is this, in chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. <coughs> which are not written in this book. But these are written. Here's why, here's why all of this is here, he's saying. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So that is the Jewish way of saying king. That Jesus is the king, or the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So how is it life-giving that Jesus is the king? How is it life-giving that he is the true and eternal King. Well, here's why it's life-giving. Because as king, he is the kind of king that takes. Now, we're used to kings that take. You know, I think this is why a lot of us have so many problems with authority. A lot of us just can't stand any kind of authority. We hate it. Because authority takes takes, takes. In fact, this is when the people came to Samuel back in the Old Testament. And they said, Samuel, you've done a good job, but we really want a king like the, all the other nations. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel says, well, you can, I mean, I just, I don't think that's a good idea because here's what kings do. Kings take, they take, they take, they take, they take, and you know what else kings do? 
kings take. Six times, 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is what kings do. This is what people in authority do. This is why what we say is true, right? There's two things that are always certain about life. Death and taking. Taxes. I mean, this is true about government. It's also true about the authority that you lived with, probably. You lived with flawed authority at some point in life. Authority takes and takes and takes. This is why when you hear that you have a boss or someone in charge of you, you kind of push back and you don't like it. Probably. Because some of us had dads that demeaned us, took away our dignity, at least some measure of our dignity. And and it's because when we look back, we see that there at some level they were broken. Some of us had moms that manipulated us and at some level took away a measure of our joy because of all the manipulation. And we're like, well, looking back, we can see they did the best they could, but they were broken. Some of us had coaches that called us names, took away our confidence. When we look back, we can see they were, they were just broken. Some of us have bosses that try to break us. Take away the joy of going to work. We don't even like going to work. How much time do you spend at work? A lot of time, but I hate it. Broken. See, this is the difference. This is why this is life-giving. Jesus is the king. And you know what he takes? Sins of the world. He takes our place. He takes our place and bears our punishment for us. He takes our sentence. We're judged guilty. He takes our guilt. He takes our shame. He takes the punishment that should be ours. So it's life-giving to know that the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is utterly in charge, it is life-giving to know that the one who is utterly in charge is not the kind of person that takes and takes and takes and takes and takes, but the kind of person that takes our place to give us his life. That's who's in charge. That's why you can go through life not living in fearful anger, not giving way to worry because you know who's utterly in charge. So what should we do? Well, the first thing we should do is stop admiring Caesar. You see Caesar's name again and again. You you notice how what Caiaphas and the chief priests say at one point, they say, he says, shall I crucify your king? Verse, uh, verse 15, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate says to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. You know, you know that they would never say this in any other circumstances, right? They're willing to say whatever they have to say to hold on to their place and their power. You know, like from Psalm 2, maybe you don't, but Psalm 2 theology is God is king. He is the 
only king. And he delegates authority and power on earth to his Christ. And the high priest would never say that that was Caesar. Never. Unless Caesar really is their king. And what I mean by Caesar is worldly power. Worldly authority. And I wonder, I wonder how many of us get confused about that. Get confused about worldly power and worldly authority and, and really admire that and look up to that and want to be that. You know, this is why Caiaphas makes all these terrible compromises, says stuff that he would never say. And I wonder if sometimes you stay, say stuff that you would never say. Because you really look up to the worldly power and worldly authority. Is it political power and political authority that you really look up to? Is, is it wealth? Is it position and prominence and you look up to that? See, the chief priests, I, I, I want to read it to you. Back in John chapter 11, verse 48. Jesus is getting a lot of attention, and they're like, this, this can't go on like this. We, we can't do something. You know, the Romans are going to come in here, and the Romans are going to take away our place and our power. They're, the Romans are going to come in and just decimate everything because too many people think Jesus is the Christ. And we, then we lead, re, re, read in chapter 11, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come in and take a place, take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, or do you not understand that it's better that for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish? And indeed, that is what Pilate decided to do. Because I think Pilate played this game in his mind of like, now, what do I have to do to hold on to my place and my position and my power? If it's killing an innocent man then I guess that's what it is. Would Caesar kill an innocent man to hold on to his place and his power? Yep. See, when they say, we have no king but Caesar, maybe they're telling the truth. Maybe that really is what they admire and worship. And this is certainly what Pilate admires and worships. Would Caesar kill an innocent man to keep the peace? Yep. Okay, then that's what we'll do. You know, the first Christians were faced with this question. Whether or not they would pronounce Caesar as God, Caesar as Lord. And the Romans thought the Christians were dangerous because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord or Caesar is God. And so they tried to smoke them out of their caves and, and persecute them and burn them. And one of them in particular, his name was Polycarp. They really wanted to get him and so they looked for him for days. Finally found him. They find him, and I'm talking to you about this from Fox's Book of Martyrs. They finally find him after looking for him for days. He welcomes them into his house. You know, he could have run away, he could have hid, but he didn't. He welcomes them in, feeds them a meal, asks them if he can pray while they eat. They say, sure. So they eat, he goes upstairs and prays. They hear him praying for them. Then, when it's time, they go get him. He doesn't fight just like his Lord. He goes with them, and on the way, they're like, dude, it's no big deal. Just say 
Lord Caesar. Just say Caesar is Lord. All you have to do is say Caesar is Lord, do a little pinch of incense in the fire. That's all you have to do. And you get to live. And you get to keep pastoring your church. And no one bothers you. That's all you have to do. This is, this is how it, this is, this is a quote. What harm is it to say Lord Caesar and to sacrifice and you get to live? It's no big deal. It's just words. It's just a pinch of incense. Polycarp says, I'm not doing that. Take me away. Do whatever you have to do. I'm not doing that. So they, they put him in the chariot. They bring him to the, to the theater where they kill the Christians. And they say to him one more time, they say, bro, you're old. Have some respect for your age. Just compromise. Just say hail Caesar and just, just don't. Just renounce Christ. All you have to do is renounce Christ. That's all you have to do. And, and you get to live and you don't get burned. And he says this, 80 and 6 years have I served him. And he never once wronged me. How shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? How am I going to do that? And, and they're like, okay, well, we're going to start the fire then. He's like, I'm not worried about this fire, but you should be worried about the eternal fire. Look, whatever worldly power you're tempted to fear or admire or worship, it is so temporary. But our Lord Christ is eternal. So admire him. Admire him. Think of this. Our Lord Christ, the creator of the heavens and the earth, came, walked among us, obeyed the law perfectly, obeyed his Father perfectly, and gave his life for us so that our bodies could be utterly redeemed. So that our sins could be washed away. He took our place. He paid our debt. He was punished for our sins. This is the one to admire. This is the one to worship. So if you're, if you're here going, I don't know, man. The, the, life is, you know, the life is still such a mess. And I'm just not sure I believe that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, I want, you, I want you to listen to what we say at the end of communion. At the end, we always say, because he says, do this in remembrance of me. And we pray this, till he comes. See, the, right now, we think that we're Pilate, and we think that we're up on the judgment seat, and we're, we think that we're the one deciding about him. But the day will come when he's up on the judgment seat and he's the one deciding about us. 
And he's offered you a way for him to pass over you. And it's his body and his blood that will cover you. The day will come when in judgment he makes all things right. When he brings utter justice to everything. And then it will be too late. So be right with him now. Receive his forgiveness and grace now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would pull us each towards you because you love us and gave yourself for us. Lord, I pray that we would not fight against you, not pull against you, not pull away from you, but Lord, that we would bow to you as our King. Because you gave your life for us, that we would give our lives to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.